as with anything, pressure breeds innovation. Using that as a global experience, we all started to become a little bit more innovative. I think globally, we're all ready for something a bit different to what was before 2020 kicked off. This is Techcetera, a podcast by Ericsson about the intersection of technology, culture, etc. I'm your host, Sarah Goss, and I'm head of innovation at Ericsson. Our planet is at a tipping point with many scientists giving the world as little as eight years to reverse centuries of wasteful habits and pollutive practices. This pressing challenge has given birth, or some would say a rebirth, to the circular economy. In this episode of Techcetera, we meet with Olympia Yaga. Olympia is the founder and CEO of GoTerra and a leader in transitioning to the circular economy. A passionate farmer, Olympia believes that insects are the answer to the world's waste problem, farming them to supply GoTerra's waste management infrastructure, fertiliser and feed for livestock. We'll also be chatting with Richard Fine. Richard is the founder of Biopack, one of the world's leading suppliers and innovators of compostable single-use packaging. Born into the packaging industry, Richard is dedicated to making his life's work better for the planet, combining his decades of expertise with his passion for sustainability. In today's episode, we ask Richard and Olympia to answer the question, how can technology play a vital role in transitioning the world to a less wasteful future? Let's get stuck in. Richard, can you tell me about starting Biopack? I was involved in the plastics industry my entire life. My father had a plastics factory. And when I migrated to Australia in 2003, I became really acutely aware of all the plastic that I noticed on the beaches. And that was the motivation to begin Biopack. At the same time, I read a book, Cradle to Cradle, which was a fantastic book about the circular economy. And coupled with that and my understanding of the plastics industry, I thought that this was an opportunity for me to use my knowledge to transition away from fossil-based plastics. In a nutshell then, what does Biopack do? We provide a range of single-use food service disposable packaging and products made from rapidly renewable resources. And all of our products are compostable at the end of life. So with food service packaging, it's always contaminated with food residue. And so it cannot be recycled using conventional techniques. And that's why composting is really a great end of life solution for this materials. And Olympia, what inspired you to start GoTerra? I started in agriculture. So I was really looking to create a sustainable agricultural system that didn't have the same challenges that conventional agriculture has today, where commodity prices really challenge production. And the longer I work on this problem, the more I realised that waste was such a significant issue that actually unlocking waste streams to feed insects was a problem to solve all on its own. And so that's how GoTerra evolved into the organisation it is today, which is a lot more about getting autonomous robotic systems to make insects do a job. We all know that wasteful habits are having a detrimental impact on the environment. How crucial is it for businesses to transition to the circular economy and more sustainable business models? Richard, we'll start with you. It's imperative that all businesses transition. I don't think that there will be a business model in the future that 
doesn't embrace and encompass circularity design and circularity principles. The current situation, this linear model of take, make, waste is just not sustainable long term. And that's why there's so much potential opportunity at the moment when it comes to circular business systems. And it's something that everyone will have to adapt to going forward. And what does that look like, Richard, for you? It means managing the resources and materials in a way that doesn't produce waste, that keeps the resources circulating as long as possible and deriving the maximum value from the natural resources that we utilise. Olympia, what's your thoughts on how critical this is for businesses? I think we're already seeing it. If you look at specifically just agriculture and the constraints currently on fertiliser across the developed world, These are only going to continue to get more constrained. And so you're going to see farmers and agricultural producers looking for alternate sources of compostable organic material to deliver nitrogen back to the soil so that we can continue producing. Those things will have to come from circular economy practices, principles and infrastructure. And we're already sort of seeing that being moved into the market and the value of those products going up. So we are in constrained times. We use more than we create every year, earlier each year. And so it's inevitable because there is no other option. And I think the best thing we can do is embrace that this is true and start adopting measures that engage and involve empowering that capability. You mentioned there the impacts of COVID. What have been the opportunities that the pandemic has given rise to or the setbacks it's caused if we think about impacts that way? What might be some examples? When you think about opportunities, what that situation did is that we globally experienced something. So it was a unique moment in time where all of us were constrained in the same way. And so there was a shared global experience which means that at a very small and sort of individual and regional level, we were all looking for ways to interact within five kilometres of our home. We were looking for ways to enjoy the things we normally enjoy, like eating out or having games, but within the constructs of the constraints we found ourselves in. And so it forced us to reimagine how we do business as usual. And I think it opened the aperture to opportunities that previously we didn't have enough pressure to force us to start adopting or looking at. As with anything, pressure breeds innovation. And so using that as a global experience, we all started to become a little bit more innovative on how we wanted to do business and what was important to us. And I think coming out on the other side, I think globally we're all ready for something a bit different to what was before 2020 kicked off. Richard, picking up on Olympia's comments there, are businesses and industries embracing the change on a widespread scale and what's convincing them to make that transition? Specifically for Biopack, we've seen a huge increase in takeaway meals or meals consumed at home. And this has resulted in a lot more packaging waste and packaging materials. So on that side of things, it's been good for business, difficult to balance that with the supply constraints. And I guess that leads into another area that COVID has really sort of shone the light on is our reliance on this global network. And so looking to become, I guess, more self-sufficient as a country. And a lot of countries have been looking at how this has impacted trade across the world and are looking to become a bit more self-sufficient and bring manufacturing back on shore again and have a localized manufacturing instead of relying on manufacturing products in other countries and shipping them long distances. So, And I think that's a really positive thing, especially in light of the circular economy and reducing the impacts that we have of consumers in the world. 
Olympia, what about from your point of view? How far have we come? Have we made much of a dent in the problem? There's so much of a problem to deal with. The regional sovereignty over globalisation and the important for states to have sovereignty over food production and all of those things. I think, as Richard said, that we feel that as a thing now rather than an ideology or a vision for where we should be. We actually are experiencing it and moving through it. And so I think we are going to start to see your movement to that. I think the challenge is that some of the constructs and the ecosystems that drive those new changes aren't ready for it. And I think a great example is the emergence of green tech companies, which are largely hardware, trying to engage in a venture capital model, which is set up for SaaS and software. And so this strong desire to invest in innovation that delivers on a climate change promise, but we're kind of like there on the social will. The catch up is going to be in the architecture and the ecosystems that can deliver it because those are big shifts within some of our bigger industries, finance, historically slow movers when it comes to these things. Just going back though to the idea of the startup ecosystem, are there some startups or scale-ups that you would say, watch these players in this space who are leveraging technology in a good way to propel this transition to the circular economy? I'll take the Australian perspective because we very rarely sort of talk about what's happening in Australia, but there's some really unique organisations that are doing just some incredibly powerful things too that come to my mind, Swarm Farm Robotics, which is uh, automation of farming systems delivered as a service. This sort of idea of the iPhone of autonomous systems where you can make a robot do the job that you needed to do on farm. They are the most advanced robotics automation company in the world and they're located in Emerald, Queensland, if you can believe it. And the idea of removing labour and creating security in regions where you know, it's hard to get people to come and ride harvesters, it's difficult to get good people to do boring work, replacing them with robotic systems that have a lower carbon footprint, they're smaller, they're more efficient. What an incredible opportunity there. Another organisation that I'm particularly fond of is a company called Holbot, so autonomous drones to clean boats, waterfowling from the debris and, and the paint that we use on boats is actually really damaging our oceans and critically affecting the ecosystem of our aquaculture. And this is a technology that literally just keeps boats clean so we can stop using really dangerous chemicals, but it's so sophisticated. It's using vision technology to map the boat. So Olympia, you gave examples there of the paint from boats falling off in the ocean. And certainly I didn't know that. That wasn't something I was aware of. So Richard, how do we build awareness and education more broadly of some of these issues? I think in doing so, we have more people who then will get behind the need to do something about it, but maybe even have skills and knowledge and experience that they can apply themselves to tackle it. How do we encourage and nurture that? There's amazing opportunities for documentaries to really shift the public consciousness. And I think about War on Waste and David Attenborough's Blue Planet. These documentaries reached a wide, wide audience and really shifted that understanding of our impact on the planet. And once you have that significant understanding by a large portion of the population, then suddenly you can see a lot of change happen very quickly. So education is key and you've got to just be passionate about a specific topic 
for me, it's about plastics and the environment. And so I'm always reading up and trying to understand more about the impacts of plastics. And interesting that Olympia mentioned about the paint on boats. And something that I've been researching now is the impact of paint on the planet. And I just read an article the other day about the paints on bridges, the paints on buildings contain huge amounts of polymers in these products. And as they weather off buildings and bridges and structures that we paint globally, they enter the marine environment and fragment into the microplastics now. At the moment, not a lot of people are aware that paint is so potentially toxic, even that paint contains plastic. So let's get the word out there. Let's start with our small groups, our small little areas of influence, and then slowly that message amplifies out and more and more people become aware of it. And then once there's awareness, then we can look to tackle that and make the change. I mean, you know, plastics have been under the spotlight for a very long time. And there's still so much that we don't know about it. Again, another article came out the other day about plastic sports drink bottles. 4,000 different chemicals identified in a plastic sports drink bottle after it had been cleaned in a dishwasher. So once you know these things, you don't want to particularly buy a plastic sports bottle again. So it's really important, I guess, to ask the questions and not take everything at face value. And really important is that just because you finally understand something doesn't mean that's where it ends. You need to have this constant inquiry into finding out more and more and biopack sustainability is not a destination it's a journey and as we learn more and more as we evolve and become better at what we do we have to pivot and make those adjustments as we learn that materials have a specific impact or maybe they source from a location that's damaging the environment so it's an ongoing process of re-evaluating and understanding all the supply chain inputs what happens to your materials at the end of life and really taking responsibility for those end of life options i think all companies today really need to approach whatever that they do by taking responsibility for everything that they do and put out into the consumer marketplace and ensure that it's not having any detrimental impacts. And if it does, make the changes as difficult as they may be because if you don't, someone else will and you'll be left behind. What are the examples maybe that you've seen which have been helpful in creating or triggering the tipping point to shift from, I've watched this documentary and I've had an aha moment, to changing behaviour, to knowing that the plastic sports drink bottle is bad news, to then deciding I'm not going to buy that ever again. Give you a great example, something that really shifted the conversation and really changed the way people see a specific product would be the image of the turtle with a straw up its nose. That was an incredibly powerful image and that led to the global banning of single-use plastic straws almost. So Something that consumers can relate to, something that they can, I guess, raise some empathy is always incredibly powerful. That coupled with obviously a whole lot of other things, I think other moments in time, for example, China's national sword policy, where suddenly we couldn't just ship our waste offshore. It was all having to be processed onshore. At that stage, consumers didn't have to think about it. They just knew that the waste was potentially being recycled. We didn't have to worry about it. We sent it all offshore. When China closed their borders to that, suddenly we were faced with a challenge that we had to deal with, and everyone became aware of waste and recycling. Olympia, that sense of feeling the impacts of climate change, feeling the squeeze of the constraints and pressure that you spoke about earlier. I think you described it as, we all feel it as a thing now, as an experience, as a need, not an ideology. Would you agree that then another way of viewing the circular economy is as a purpose-driven economy? We need a name to know what we're doing, right? So we have to call it something so that we know what actions are part of its construction. So if you say circular economy, then 
we have to understand what that is and then we understand how we participate and we can understand how we can be activists for something that has a construct i think where we get stuck is that it can feel too big because the data is relevant to things that are outside of our control and so the china stopping our export of our waste was a really great way to bring it home that yellow top bin was not enough and i think we underestimate the desire of humanity to just get on with their life and this sort of burden that i have to prosecute each decision i make to ensure that i'm doing the right thing is just not a status quo that many of us can and sustain for long periods of time we want to engage but what we really would prefer is if you just tell us how to participate in this thing we care about and if we do that well then we can check the box and then we can go back to the coast or to wherever and so i think we get stuck is trying to spend too much time defining recreating and and not enough time providing data that is specific to sort of that rubber meets the road place right so if you do this then it equals this and you have contributed in a way that makes a difference they don't need to know what it's called or how it's going to work they want to understand that if they put their banana skin in the bin that bin goes to us and the outcome is x y and z and that helps them understand that they have done a good thing Olympia I really relate to what you're saying about keeping it simple so that the adoption of these new practices are incremental and they kind of just feed into the way of life that people are used to and that they like if we're honest with ourselves especially living in a privileged place like Australia the thought of having to give up things which bring us happiness or joy or pleasure or even convenience and these types of things it's tough even if intellectually we can appreciate they might be the right things to do so this idea of keeping it simple but also practical at that rubber meets the road level i think it's a really good point richard i wondered have you seen where we've been getting some of that stuff right can you speak to where there are instances of not overcomplicating it not expecting it to be an academic complicated sort of argument and rationale but we've just served it up to people and really empowered them to be able to act instantly to make change i think we relate this back to what you mentioned before about a purpose company or having purpose in what you do i think it's really important that companies focus on giving back to the communities returning resources back to the planet something that is more than just greed and profits and i think consumers are becoming more and more aware of companies that have agendas that maybe aren't aligned with their views of the world or with their values and certainly something that inspired me was companies like Ben and & Jerry's and Patagonia where it's about educating consumers but also caring for the environment and there's a lot of companies that seem to have that right Olympia's companies is a great example of a company that's doing something utilizing technology and it's just putting the pieces together to create a solution that people don't really have to think about and it's just there and technology can certainly enable this we don't have to give up our conveniences and our current comfortable lifestyles necessarily we don't have to go back to pre-industrial area or reduce consumption in order to still be sustainable we just need to do it in a different way and i think we just need to look to nature uh, for inspiration and if we can recreate how nature produces 
and nothing goes to waste in nature. Everything is utilized and regenerative. I think that that's the model that a lot of companies are looking to replicate. Connectivity and technology are really pervasive in our lives now. I mean, you talked about that. And as you were even referencing the idea of looking to nature, I immediately thought of GoTerra Olympia. How are those two things coming together for you? Connectivity, technology, but looking to nature as well in tackling some of our challenges. In a perfect world, you can imagine a place where we've just put nature to work in the way that it was designed to sustain what is largely our selfishness in how we want to live. And that I don't know if that's a terrible thing. All we've done is taken an industrial autonomous system that can empower what insects do on their own if we were leaving them to their own devices and we've sent them out into the world to do it in a very specific way so that it can create a service that makes our customers happy, gives them an opportunity they haven't had before and access to a service that most of them wouldn't be able to unlock. When we think about the connectivity that it takes to do that, it sort of takes a lot of levels, not just the sort of more prevalent data conversation, but how you access that data, how you share it, how you use it to make good decisions, and then also the connectivity of the logistics of how we move things around. Do we recreate the existing supply chains that are logistically inefficient? Do we leverage them to do a better job? Do we reimagine how we can exist without them or how they could be redone? And what kind of infrastructure would propel that kind of change? You build this thing that works, people want to use it. And if it does its job as well as you hoped, then they will start to imagine it in their world. And what I mean by that is that instead of it becoming a service that they use, they start to imagine how that can use you to improve outcomes for themselves. So can we put GoTerra in this centralised place and use our trucks to move our own food waste around? Can we reimagine where we think these things could go and how we actually manage our food waste? So instead of trucking it anywhere, it is co-located where the waste is created. Those things are the evolution that we're going to start to see, I think, in these next five to 10 years as the indoor farming systems, the robotic farming systems, our type of technology start to come online. Early adoption will be just using them and then we will start to see that, oh, how else can I use them for my own gain? Where else can we leverage this technology to deliver a solution for another pain point in our business? And like I said, they're all interconnected. They are a two-dimensional circle. This is a very 3D moving situation. And so that's where it starts to get really exciting. And I think sort of where we can start leveraging technology, connectivity and immense social will to participate as activists in choosing companies that deliver better outcomes. Richard, you were early in this game, really. You started Biopack in 2006. What have you seen since then in the evolution of the capability and role of technology in building the circular economy and how does it look for you moving forward? Brilliant question, Sarah. I mean, this it's been incredible how much has happened since 2006. Now, I think in 2007, the iPhone came out and wow, look how much it's changed the world since that happened. So I think it would have been impossible for Biopack to even 
be here today if it wasn't for technology. We entered a market with significant established players already there, and we outcompeted them by leveraging technology, by utilizing the cloud and IT to improve service levels, to reduce overheads of staff counts. And technology has not only helped us in business operations and connecting us with our clients and our supply chain, but it's also facilitated in evolving material science and our understanding of different materials and how they behave. And then technology has also even played a role in waste management and being able to identify waste and sort it more effectively. One of the things that I'm working on at the moment with a US-based company is a smart bin with artificial intelligence and image recognition technology that takes the decision-making process away from the consumer at the point of disposal and automatically identifies and sorts waste, or we don't call it waste anymore, but resources in order to ensure that the streams are clean and uncontaminated. These types of innovations will be just as significant as the iPhone has been in changing the way that we interact with the world. We can still enjoy those conveniences. And I think the real importance about technology and connectiveness is knowledge and knowledge is power and being able to gather the knowledge, analyze it, and then share it is the key to changing the world. There's so much that we don't know specifically about our waste streams and how we produce and how we manage these things. So if we can have a system that automatically does that for us and we can then analyze that data, we can make better and more informed decisions on how to improve. It's been a slow burn, I think. It just hasn't been a snap and we've all woken up and had this big realization. But we are headed in the right direction from what you're both talking about today. For you, Olympia, What's been most notable in terms of what's changed in recent times regarding the outlook and that future of the circular economy? I might be biased here, but I think the fires changed everything. I think it was the cataclysmic event that we all needed to realise that it wasn't just this thing that was going to happen sometime in the future. And they went on long enough and they were so immense and so devastating and so impactful they interrupted our lives for long enough that it counted and so I think there was a huge shift in how Australians and the world because that now the north of the world is burning in the same way is addressing this problem and is engaged with it and connected to it and so I think the hyper movement that we saw in the last two years, everybody going, emissions are down because we're not traveling. How do we improve this? We're almost eating ourselves. Use EVs, oh, the cobalt mining. Like we're sort of over-analyzing all these things now. and We're hyper-focused and starting to become more aware that every decision we make has an impact, that there is no way to separate or differentiate what we're doing with the impact that it will make. And I think, yeah, that was the catalyst for that and the wake-up call that we unfortunately desperately needed and ironically happened at the beginning of the decisive decade. I think actually you really took us back. It's quite vivid. It's recent enough history and as you said, we all lived through it and even if it wasn't our backyards that were burning across Australia, there was this real sense of the magnitude of that disaster and it did catalyse a shift and the questioning and the heightened consciousness about a whole raft of things. It actually, as you were describing that time, made me think of a book I read a few years ago written by 
Daniel Flynn, who's a co-founder of the Thank You Group, and he talked about the concept of momentum. And it's something that's really stuck with me. And in fact, I apply it in my work. And it's this idea of when you're trying to tackle something so big and you know the problems to solve, you can often come up against brick walls, resistance, and feel like you're maybe pushing the proverbial uphill. But if you switched your mindset to look where change is starting to shift and to apply your energy where it's already flowing, that generates momentum and that can accelerate and amplify the impact that you're able to make and the progress that you can get. I wonder how do you relate to that, Olympia? How I think about it personally and how we think about it as an organisation subsequently is that once you recognise that that is true, you are sort of a little ahead of that flywheel, right? So if you are conscious, if you're more engaged with this conversation than sort of the average, then you can participate in continuing that flywheel momentum. Even just making better conversations, like something that I say a lot is like when people say, do you want a bag? I just say, no bags, it's 2022. And I say fun and keep it light because you don't want to be a righteous person at the <laughs> checkout because enough now but like just that phrase just to remind everyone we're not doing plastic anymore guys like stop I think these little things that just help remind everyone that we are participating in this thing lots of little decisions in my family around these things we use glass jars as cups it now and so of course I've made that a thing at Goterra and everyone laughs they're like really we're drinking out of peanut butter jars I'm like it's bigger than a normal water tumbler it's a much better glass and if you break it I don't care I have heaps of them you want and so now we have these jokes right where the pickled onion glass is a short glass and then we have like the long olive jar is now your mahini jar and like you have like, this whole like exciting sort of thing and you see other people start to adopt it because it's like oh actually mason jars is exactly the same concept and because they're mason jars we think it's cute and bonhomie but you're actually using your mavis peanut butter jar is a little weird so just little things like that that you can do to encourage other people because humans are tribal we just don't want to be alone we're herd animals we want to be together in a group of like-minded things and so if you create this idea that they're not alone and they're safe to try that's one way you can really create momentum in a meaningful way by just having a lot of fun so I always whip out my massive metal smoothie straw which is like this huge talking point because it's like it looks like a <laughs> ball punch it's this massive but I hate the thin straws you can't drink a smoothie with it it's like a baton <laughs> and then you clank it down at the Boost Juice store and everyone laughs and thinks it's the funniest thing you've ever seen. And those things just sit in people's minds and they make a difference and they niggle away at the right people and they go, oh, I could get a straw like that. And then those things matter. I think if you care, then just take that extra step to keep saying it out in the world so that everybody knows it's safe to take that next step. And making it fun and having a sense of humour is important, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, actually, as we're laughing there, I was thinking it's such a serious topic. <laughs> no, but when we talk about it, we're always so serious and it is serious, but it is good to be able to laugh and have a sense of humour as well. And I don't know, what do you think, Richard? Do you think some of Olympia's habits might catch on? 
I think that they're brilliant. I definitely think that they a lot of them are already going mainstream. Well done, Olympia. I think never underestimate the power of a small group of people to change the world. Richard, one last question for you. What are your top priorities at the moment? My top priorities are, first and foremost, closing the loop for our products, engaging with industry, both the food service industry, the food service packaging industry, and the organic recycling industry to recover and process packaging or compostable packaging with organic waste, helping to expand that infrastructure. We're developing an extended producer responsibility scheme for our industry where we actually fund and facilitate the expansion of the organics recycling to recover food service packaging as well. What about you, Olympia? What's front and centre on your agenda? For us, it's really about scale. Yeah, we've proved that we can do what we do. We've rolled out now into three locations and demonstrated that these units can do their job in the model that we imagined that they could do. And now it's about turning that on and executing on that growth capacity and just taking this product to the world so that we can service organics, no matter whether you're in a metro or a small regional town. And in doing so, create just a small, more secure regional circular economy where waste is managed in the region and the resulting commodities are returned to that region for benefit and deliver on some jobs to boot. And I'm pretty much singularly focused on that because I feel strongly that the pressure of the next eight years and I think as an organisation, GoTerra has a meaningful opportunity to deliver on mitigating the climate crisis if we do our job properly. So no pressure, but also all of the pressure. (laughs) well i wish you both continued success in what you're doing in your important work olympia yaga from goterra and richard fine from biopac thank you so much for joining TechSetter. it's been wonderful to talk to you thank you sarah it's my pleasure thank you you've been listening to TechSetter, a podcast about the intersection of technology culture etc This podcast was produced by Ericsson. For 130 years and counting, Ericsson has been innovating to deliver the best of mobile connectivity and broadband to billions of people around the world, driving positive change in every sector of our society. To find out more, head to our website at ericsson.com. To guarantee you don't miss an episode of TechCetera, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Sarah Goss, and I'll be back next episode with more Techcetera.